do me a favor and close your eyes. I, I, not if, if you're driving or something, like don't, don't close your eyes. But if you're not preoccupied and using your eyes right now, do me a favor and close them. And when you close your eyes, can you see what's going on behind the scenes in your eyeballs, specifically in your retina? You might not be able to see it, but you can visualize the fact that there is a number of different processes that are being done in your retina. Cells are growing, cells are dying and changing every minute of your life. But let's go further back to when you were born. How did your eyes develop? Well, I don't have the answer to that, but my name is Louis Colorotolo. I'm a student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science, not eyeball science. And I like to talk to other graduate students who are doing research in various fields to see what they're up to, what they're learning, and why that's important to me. So today we're talking with Tara McDonald, who takes a close look at your retina. Well, the retina that was developing when you started developing. She wants to know what genes are doing sneaky things behind the scenes in order to make your eyeballs what your eyeballs are today. Now, Tara is an avid reader, but she's reading libraries of genes. But take her word for it. So it looks like this gene or this librarian can change what it closes off for different systems. In short, Tara reads a lot and has to consult this librarian of the gene library that helps us figure out how cells in your retina are made. So if you want to figure out who this librarian is, what they're reading, and how reading books of genes can do anything for your eyeball, you're going to have to listen to the rest of this episode. But while listening, remember a few things. We don't know everything. We're graduate students. We're doing our best. We're learning things. But that's why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Tara. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing really good. How are you? Hi, I'm pretty good over here. Could you do us a favor and give us your educational history? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually from Sydney, Australia. Uh, we are recording this in Canada. Um, but yeah, so I actually did uh, all of my undergraduate in Sydney. So I started off with a just a Bachelor of Science, went in with the goal of doing a chemistry degree, found I actually really liked biology and ended up doing a double major in chemistry and in molecular and cellular biology. Um, and so that's just like a three-year degree. Um, but I decided at the end, I actually was kind of interested in research after doing some research projects. Um, and so I did this kind of add-on one-year bachelor's uh, of science honors. Uh, and this was in chemistry. So more specifically, I was actually looking at uh, material science, kind of nanoscience, where I was looking at uh, the synthesis of metallic nanoparticles with ultimately my goal was to try and make some catalysts uh, for next generation batteries in cars. Um, so if you think of like a hydrogen car, you need something that's going to make that as efficient as possible. And I was looking at designing these catalysts that make it more efficient. Uh, so I basically just did a, a total of four years of undergrad at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Uh, and then I decided to come here and I decided to go straight into my PhD, didn't do a master's or anything. Um, so I just dove right in. Yeah, now I'm doing uh, my PhD in cell and systems biology. Uh, and I'm kind of looking at a mix between development bio developmental biology and epigenetics. Uh, and I'm doing this at the University of Toronto in the city of Toronto. 
So you say cell and system biology. I have a feeling this doesn't mean that you're like a systems manager of biology. You're not like the accountant of the of the, the mitochondria. Definitely not. No. So I think our department is quite big. And so by having being in this department that sells and systems, uh, it starts off basically people can do research right down at that cellular level, or they can start to look at cellular systems as a whole. So some people might work on the brain and they're looking at circuits and systems going on with the brain where there are lots of cells connecting with one another. And I'm kind of in the middle of those two. So where do you find yourself landing in, in the cells and the systems or the continuum of cells and systems? <laughs> yeah. So I kind of, I would say my ultimate goal is to kind of understand what's happening more at the system level but I'm specifically kind of doing my research at the cellular level. I'm trying to understand what is happening within cells so that we can then kind of see, okay, if we know what happen what's happening in cells, then we can kind of work out what's happening at a larger picture. All right. So can I get an example of a system? Like what, what systems exist? <laughs> so, um, for example, systems could apply to a lot of things, uh, but when I'm kind of talking about the systems, I'm actually talking about the retina, um, which, in case you're not aware, is basically a few layers of cells uh, that consist at the back of your eye. And basically, they're important for detecting light and images that we see and converting that into information that get thinking that then gets sent to the brain, which will tell you what you're seeing. So I'm trying to understand how the cells in that system or in the retina work together and how they develop to be able to do that function in the long run. I guess when I when I think about vision, it seems like such a ridiculously complex concept that I, I, part of me wonders if I'll ever even have a working understanding of how we see images. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not going to ask you to, to redefine the entirety of how we see, but could you give us like a, an idea of like how our eyeballs make images and our brain says, yeah, that's an image? See, that's a very good question. And I could probably give you a very basic understanding. Um, I, again, I'm working at a very fundamental level. So I'm actually looking at how the different cells in the eye form. But essentially, you have several, there are seven different types of cells in your eye, or at least in the organism that I'm studying, the zebrafish. Uh, and some of them uh, you might have heard of before, which are called rods and cones. Um, and so they're pretty well conserved. So lots of different species have them, including humans. Cones, if you don't know, typically uh, allow us to see different colors. So we have uh, a few different types of cones in our eyes that allow us to see different colors. And then we also have rods and the rods allow us to see in different light settings. So uh, in a really bright sunny day type setting or when we're in the dark at night fumbling through the house trying to get to the bathroom. Uh, so those rods allow us to see in those different light settings. Beyond that, I don't have too much of an answer for you because it is, again, very complex and it does start at that retina, but uh, it then has to travel through all of your neurons into your brain and then your brain, there are several different regions that will then come together to give you an idea of what you're actually looking at and figuring out how you're going to react to whatever you're looking at. All right. Yeah. You know what? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. 
Um, <laughs> let let's stick with rods and cones for now. Let's like let let's let's do that, and you know what? We'll deal with like looking at things later. That seems you know beyond my understanding at the moment. All right, so rods, cones, rods, cones. I've heard before the rods and cones things. Have you ever heard like that? Uh, uh, some people have more cones than other people, and they can see more colors. I feel like I've been told that women have more cones in their eyes, and they can see more. Uh, or, or more distinctly determine the difference between colors? Or is that just a BuzzFeed effect? Oh, that's interesting. I've actually never heard that fact before. I assume you mean a greater number of cones as opposed to different types? Because I do know that different organisms can have different types. I think uh, there's a type of lobster that I know has lots of different types of cones and so they can apparently see colors that we can't even begin to imagine but uh, yeah no I have not actually heard that myth before but something that I do know there is another person in my lab who uh, works on different organisms she's looking at uh, reptiles so kind of like lizards and snakes who don't necessarily have rods or cones they have rod-like cones and cone-like rods and so kind of over the course of history maybe there's been some level of merging maybe one was removed so the research is still quite new and we don't know too much about it uh, it's quite an interesting subject i honestly like i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that i wish that i could see the world like a lobster does I agree too. Although they probably spend most of their time underwater, right? They don't get to see the whole world. They don't. They get, but it, I imagine you know, underwater, everyone's singing musicals like they do in the Disney movies. So like, they, they oh, get yeah. their own unique experience. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, we got these rods. We got these cones. They do things. I, uh, if we're thinking now, rods. Rods was the light setting thing. So like a cat would have different types or different amounts of rods than we would because they can see in the dark. Yeah. I mean, again, I cannot confirm or deny, but I would assume that you are correct because we know that cats have much better night vision than we do. Uh, so my assumption would be that their eyes would rather be maybe a more of a 50-50 split. They would have more rods in them than they would have cones because they do need to see to hunt prey at night. All right. So now I, I've grilled you on like one third of the animal kingdom, which is clearly, <laughs> it's not your specialty, but I just, I wanted to know more about cats and lobsters than any person should. Um, so let's, let's go back into what you're doing. You're talking about the retina. Now on my eyeball, I can't see my retina. Can I? No, you can't. It's actually at the back of your eye. So uh, you won't be able to see it by just looking at your eye. All right. Fair, fair. So, okay, this retina does what again? Could you could you tell us again what the retina does? Basically, when uh, light passes through your eye, different uh, colors and different levels of light will be detected by either your rods or your cones. And that then kind of gets converted into electrical impulses and energy that is what uh, the kind of uh, communication that your neurons use. And so the neurons are basically nervous cells that can communicate with one another using these electrical impulses. So the rods and the cones will do the detecting. They then send that through, that information through to your neurons, which are also part of the retina. And then they can send that information through uh, your eye stem and up into your brain. All right. So then what, what are you doing with this retina? Seems like you figured it all out. Like, <laughs> what are you still doing about it? No, that is a good question. So I am actually trying to understand 
a portion of the development of the retina. Kind of what I'm looking at can be applied to a, potentially a lot of different systems and not just the retina. Um, I'm basically trying to understand how the different cells become what they are. So basically, I, the way I kind of describe it is um, during your development, uh, your eyes are actually one of the first things that will be fully developed. And so what happens is you start off with what are called these progenitor cells. Uh, they're these cells that don't have a defined type. They're not a neuron. They're not a blood cell. They're just these progenitor cells that have the capacity to turn into different cell types. So they have to kind of replicate themselves to make lots of themselves and then decide to transform into one of the cell types, uh, like a rod or a cone or another retinal neuron. And so what I'm looking at is trying to understand how do the cells actually make that switch into becoming a cone or a rod or any other type of cell? What is the mechanism by which that can happen? So uh, I'm guessing, you know, the, 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 the progenitor cell doesn't take like a career aptitude test <laughs> and determine like, oh, I like working with my hand, so I'm going to become a hand cell. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, how does a cell decide? Does it have autonomy? So that is a very good question. And that is a big portion of kind of what we're kind of studying in this field. The cells themselves, we don't actually know whether they are predestined to become a certain type of cell or if maybe they're getting signals from their environment that are saying, okay, you're in the right spot to become this type of cell, whereas one that's maybe further down the line needs to become this type of cell. One thing that we do know is that um, the different retinal cell types actually occur or start to develop over a specific timeline. Some types of cell types will appear earlier in time versus others, which kind of gives an indication, well, maybe there's some type of signaling that's giving these, info, uh, these cells what they need to decide what type of cell they become. So when you say signaling, we're not talking like a radio transmission saying like, copy, copy, cell number seven, I need you to become a retinal cell. <laughs> like, what do you what do you mean by signaling? Yeah, so that is a an important question to ask. So most of our cells kind of communicate with one another um, and with their surroundings using different chemicals or compounds. Um, something that says, here, take this and do what you want with this information. And so what cells can actually do is they could kind of secrete, send out signals, with which may be, again, different types of molecules or compounds. And then other cells can kind of capture this information. And then this will tell them what they need to do from that point on. So a cell might send out compound one or compound two, and compound one might say uh, you become a rod, where compound two might be you become a cone. So depending on what the uh, receiving cell gets, compound one or compound two will depend on what type of cell it will end up becoming because of the information that's being given to it. Are you ready for a super crude analogy that I need you to tell me is maybe not the best analogy? Absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So let's say I'm a cell. Well, okay. I'm me and I'm in a pool and I secrete a chemical as, you know, as a child might in a pool. Um, 
All right, I'm I'm peeing in the pool ultimately. <laughs> um, that I'm sending out a chemical, and that's telling people to leave the pool. Yeah. So is this something similar? Me, the cell, is releasing a chemical and giving the other people, the other cells in the pool, the idea, I should probably go. Yeah. No, that's actually a pretty a pretty good analogy, other than the cells can't necessarily escape. Okay, but fair. Say, okay, maybe I need to protect myself from this. I'm going to get into a bag and try to protect myself from what is going on in the pool. So, yeah, no, that's a great analogy, actually. <laughs> you, you know, I have to say, my analogy game is on point today. What can I say? <laughs> Uh, all right, so we we got these cells. Uh, there is some process. There's a mechanism, you're saying, uh, of this signaling. And then one cell takes up the signal and is like, all right, well, I'm going to become a cone. And the other cell picks it up and is like, well, I'm going to become a rod. And these are potentially different chemicals. Are you trying to understand which chemical is the rod chemical and which chemical is the cone chemical? Or is it way more complicated than that? So it's, I would say, less and more complicated than that. Okay. So what I'm actually looking at is what happens after they receive those chemicals. So I'm studying a, a gene or a protein that takes the information and decides what that cell does or doesn't need to become that cell. And this is kind of what I talk about when I mentioned that I study epigenetics. Uh, I would be happy to explain that a bit further if you would like. I would. Thank you. <laughs> the best way that I can kind of describe epigenetics is an analogy with an instruction manual that you might get when you buy a new piece of equipment. Maybe it's a fridge, an oven, or a car. So say you get a new car and they give you this instruction manual. And on that instruction manual, it has all of the information you could probably possibly need to help this car run. Well, our cells kind of work in the same way. So every cell in your body essentially has the same information and that information will allow them to become any type of cell in the body. But just like with an instruction manual, if I wanted to go and do something in particular, say I need to change the headlight in my car, I'm not going to read the whole instruction manual. I'm going to flick to the page that tells me about how to change the headlight in my car. And so the cells kind of do the same thing. So this information that they have is in the form of DNA, which is essentially long strings of information, like a long string of text. But rather than just having them exist in these long strings, which take up a lot of space, they tend to kind of uh, compact. And so this DNA uh, will be inaccessible for reading in some parts and accessible in other parts. So if a cell is going to become a cone, it's not going to need the same information as a blood cell. And so in that case, it's only going to have the portions able uh, and open for reading that it needs to make a rod cell. And that's kind of, again, the same analogy to an instruction manual. Hopefully that clears things up just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sorry. If, I, if I'm to put it in different words, we have basically a library of information and we just want to look at one book. Absolutely, yes. But <laughs> every single cell in our body has the entire library? Yeah. That's inefficient. That's <laughs> like body get over it we've had you know what millennia to evolve we couldn't figure out something a little bit more efficient yet well that's kind of what they did they decided rather than trying to cut out 
different portions or just take a bunch of books for each type of cell. Well, you can have everything, but you can only actually grab the books that you need. It's there in case you want to do something with it down the line. Unlikely, but just in case. But you're only going to take the things that you need because you can only carry so much maybe out of the library. Okay, so this is the general idea of epigenetics. So yes. where does epigenetics play in what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm studying a gene, as I mentioned. Um, uh, this gene has a lot of different names, but uh, I will call it gene A because that's the most well-known name for the gene. And essentially... What this gene is known to do is it will change how our DNA or our library is structured. Uh, and so it can close off regions that are inaccessible. Maybe it closes the library door and says, you don't need all of these books. Um, and it will work uh, in conjunction with other genes that might open other doors. But it's really important in saying, okay, if you're gonna become this type of cell, I'm going to close off and stop you from accessing any information that you don't need so you don't accidentally pull out the wrong book and make something that's not required. Okay. So right, this is this is a process of kind of like, you know, fine-tuning. We don't we don't need all this information. We want to just have a little bit of it. Um, and in this case, your your let let's say one of your cells in your retina is like, well, I don't need the part that teaches me how to grow hair. Mm -hmm. I need the parts that show me how to make a cone or how to make a rod. So you're trying to find out like which parts of or, or which books are available. So I would say I'm more focused on what the gene is doing. What is it closing off? How is it deciding what to close off? What inputs is it getting that says, we don't need this or we do need this? And it potentially has other roles. Some people think uh, that, and there's some research that shows that maybe it also opens some doors while closing others, but its main role seems to be in, in closing these doors. But in terms of understanding the retina and how the retina develops, we still don't understand how it does that, how it decides what to close, what is actually being closed off, and all that kind of information. So I'm trying to kind of figure out, hey, librarian, what are you doing and how are you deciding to do that? Okay, all right. And this librarian is a ridiculously complex, you know, librarian. It's not Absolutely. it's not just like, okay, this one closed, that one open, all right, done. Next. Yeah. It it's a lot. Exactly. And I kind of, I think I alluded this to this way back at the beginning, but it's not necessarily just applicable to the retina. So it looks like this gene or this librarian can change what it closes off for different systems. So we, if we were looking in the brain, the brain doesn't need cones or retinas, but it can still do the same role in allowing those uh, brain progenitors to become a different type of brain cell. While it's very complex in that, depending on what cell you put it in or what library you put it in, it knows what information to close off from everything else. So then help me out here. I'm really not a DNA person, not not my favorite acronym. I got a lot of other acronyms I like, but um, would you say a gene is sort of like a section of the library or maybe more like a librarian? What, 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 in our analogy of the library, what is a gene? 
What is a gene? So any gene in general, I would say, is a book. So every book would uh, describe one gene. So if I need to make a group of genes that are needed for a cone, then I would need to grab a bunch of different books and a bunch of different genes that work together to make that cone. However, to make the librarian, you could also take a book off the shelf and read that information and that would become the librarian. A little bit weird and a little bit abstract, but it could give you the information that's required to become the librarian. We do, genes have lots of different roles for different things, but in this case, it's more like a gene that's looking at other genes and also deciding which other genes are needed or not. It's kind of a, a, not a master gene, but it's up there. It does a lot of the controlling of all the other genes and says, hey, you, I need you, or hey, I, I think I need you. No, actually I don't, you need to stay over there. <laughs> It, it's the regional manager of genes. Yes, absolutely. Right? Not just the franchisee manager, it's the regional manager. The greater Ontario region gene. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, so I am going to bring back something that you said at the very beginning, and I've ignored it until now, and I've been dying to mention it, but <laughs> you look at the eyeballs of zebrafish. Ah, like yes. Tar like what? Why? 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 Why are you looking at zebrafish eyeballs? Look, it's a very good question. Um, so I'll briefly introduce you to model organisms in general. There are a bunch of different model organisms that we have, and these are ones that have been studied a lot. So we kind of understand a fair bit about them. Um, so. Zebrafish is kind of like the fish model organism. Uh, I wouldn't go out and necessarily find some shark because we haven't studied that a lot. We want to have something that's predictable. Now, why fish or why zebrafish is really important because what's really interesting is that when you look at the retina of the zebrafish, when it's fully developed, so when the fish is an adult, it very closely mimics or looks like our retina. So there are lots of different layers in the retina of the different cells, and the structure is almost identical between us as humans and zebrafish, which means they're a good candidate for understanding how our retina develops, because it's a lot harder to go and look at a human's retina than it is to look at a zebrafish. And there are lots of other reasons that zebrafish are great, as opposed to something like mice, who also have retina similar to our own. With zebrafish, they breed regularly, they breed a lot, and they're very easy to handle. Uh, mice can require a lot of work, for example. Zebrafish, they kind of just chill out in tanks with lots of their other friends, so they're a lot easier to handle than some other organisms. All right, so so you take a bunch of zebrafish, they're, they're in a tank, they're chilling out. What, what do you do in order to find out something about the retina of a zebrafish? Yeah, so uh, remember if we go back to I'm studying development. So I'm looking at early stages. Now for humans, it takes longer for our eyes to develop, but in zebrafish, their eyes start to develop even 24 hours or earlier from when they're born or the fish lay eggs essentially. Um, so even 24 hours after the eggs have been laid, the eyes are already developing and they're fully developed by about seven days. Uh, but what I'm looking at, I really only need to look at the first three to four days, that's where I'm interested in because that's when there are lots of progenitor cells about, which are the cells I'm studying. 
And so uh, what I actually do is I'll take the fish in tanks and then I'll breed them so that I have lots of babies to work with. That being said, they are very small. So most of the work that I'm doing is going to have to be under a microscope so I can see what could be going on down there. Okay, so you, you got these fish, you, you rope them up, you, you're looking under a microscope, you're trying to determine what this progenitor cell is becoming. Are you like trying to determine which chemicals are you know, kind of floating around at the time when these like cells are making this decision? Yeah, basically, I'm kind of trying to understand what genes or what books are open at different points in time. So I can look before the progenitor cell turns into something else and see, okay, well, what's being read at the moment? And then I can look later on when it's become a different cell and said, okay, so it's actually gotten rid of some of the books it was looking at before, and now it's pulled out all these new ones. So a lot of what I'm looking at is looking at the different types of genes that are being looked at at different points in time. Okay, so you're like creating kind of a timeline of what's happening in this library. Yeah, and by doing that, I can then understand what my uh, regional manager gene is doing by figuring out what genes it's getting rid of over that timeline. Okay, all right. And through this, you are learning, as you said, the mechanism of how the cell chooses what to become. Exactly. Okay, all right. Okay, okay, okay. We got zebrafish, we got librarians, we got genes, we got regional manager genes. <laughs> Why? And I, I'm gonna, gonna propose a big question here. Why? Why? Why do we care? What's why? the importance? Yeah, why? I, I would say on my level, why I think it's important is I think it's an important to just understand how the world is, how things happen. And obviously I could do this in so many different ways. It's just that the brain and the retina and all of the progenitor cells, they caught my eye. And that's that's why I'm looking specifically at that. But again, this is kind of a level of fundamental science. And we can kind of talk about how, well, we do need to understand what's happening normally in a normal system so that when there are potentially illnesses or retinal diseases that happen during development, well, then we have this normal system to compare them to. Because if we just look at the uh, diseased system or state, we don't know what's going wrong because we have nothing to compare it to. So it's super important to understand, well, what's happening in these normal systems? Uh, and again, we're looking at zebrafish, we're not looking at humans, but it's good to have this comparison between, say, humans and zebrafish or humans, zebrafish and mice, because then when we do try to figure out what's going on, we can also compare the differences between different organisms. So so what I took away from that is you want to learn how something works so that when something's not working, you have a comparison. Yeah, you have that baseline comparison, exactly. All right, so so that seems like an important thing because if, if you don't know how something works correctly, how can you really identify if something's working wrong? And at this point, we don't actually know how it works correctly. Yeah. That seems like a lot. So it's like, we don't, we don't even have like that base level. This is why it's called fundamental research. Yeah, exactly, is we need to understand what's happening because we don't know. In some cases we have we have an inkling we know some things that this gene might be able to do but it doesn't seem like that's the only stuff that's going on we need to understand the system as a whole in the normal settings because otherwise yeah if something's going wrong even if we can 
identify that there's something wrong, we then need to pinpoint where it's going wrong. And we can't do that if we don't understand how things normally work correctly. Okay. All right. I see. I've been holding on to that pun for too long. I honestly was like festering in me. I see. Um, not proud of it. Not not my proudest moment. Uh, either way, we we have talked about a lot of different things. We we went into zebrafish. We talked about cones and rods and lights and colors and and other animals and lobsters. Is it, could you do us a favor and just kind of sum up to the best of your ability in a couple sentences what we uh, talked about today? Absolutely. So during I guess our early development. Our eyes develop and they start off as a cluster of these progenitor cells that don't have uh, a key function yet. They haven't become uh, a certain type of cell. And then at some point, this master regulator, G9A, this gene will come in and tell these cells, you need to do this and you need to read these books from my library so that you can become a cone or you need to read these books and not these books to become a rod. And so my understanding and what I'm trying to get from this is how does that master regulator, that librarian, that G9A gene, how does it decide what information it's going to give to those different cells so that they can become what they're destined to be? Okay. All right. So we are in the business of trying to figure out what this gene is doing. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Well, that that covers that. Um, I hope you find out. I, I don't know. Um, I hope the gene trusts you enough to tell you uh, what's going on. And I wish you the best in the future. Thank you so much. I think it may not be the gene that's going to hinder me. It might be the fish themselves. They do not want to reveal their secrets. <laughs> They're sneaky little zebra they fish, are. aren't they? <laughs> but thank you so much for your time and listening to me ramble on about libraries and genes and my research. Now that this episode is over, put down the radio or this podcasting system and read a book. That That's a joke. I would never recommend reading books. I hate reading. But nonetheless, Tara has walked us through what it means to understand the genes behind making your eyeballs. And since I really just had a casual conversation with Tara, we have to admit that we don't know absolutely everything. You know, the title of the show is called We Know Some Stuff. So I guess it's that time of the show to correct some of the things that we didn't know correctly at that time with a quick fact check. The only fact check that we actually have today after listening to this episode a few times was to clarify a potential question that was brought up while we were talking. The first thing is that I proposed in the earlier part of the episode is that cats may have more rods than humans, which allows them to see in the dark. And that actually is true. Now for the other fact. Do women have more cones than men? Well, I've read a number of peer-reviewed articles, and it seems that there's not a true consensus on that exactly. Some studies say that there are women who have a fourth type of cone that allows them to distinguish between different colors more better than men, but then that also mixes in the concept of colorblindness, which is more predominant in men. So it's a little bit messy there. However, I guess someone's researching it, probably. Yeah, most likely. 
And when we have a definitive answer, we will set out an emergency broadcast to correct this fact check because we don't know the answer right now. But nothing says science like not actually knowing the answer until we can prove it a little bit better in the future. Well, that is more proof than you may need that we don't know everything. But thanks for listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff.